I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. It, I have nothing to say about that moment except that, like, I just love when characters are, are in pain. So. <laughs> hey, everyone, you're listening to Monster and Donuts, a literary and historical deep dive into the Percy Jackson series and all of its following spin offs. I'm Emily, someone who has experienced victimization at the hands of classics as a study. As a good study. <laughs> and I'm Phoebe, a dramaturg and story consultant. And today we're reading Battle of the Labyrinth. Yeah. I'm somehow simultaneously less prepared for this than I should be and overprepared for this. <laughs> because <laughs> I went back and I, my sister has a copy of Metamorphosis, so I reread the Minos and Daedalus portions of that. Oh. And then... I reread Mary Reno's The King Must Die, essentially like reading an analysis of the Theseus story written in the same tense and when he's about the same age as Percy is in the Percy Jackson books, ahead of reading Percy Jackson's take on Theseus, Mm -hmm. which was very interesting. And I have to give some credit to Daphne Olive for that one, (laughs) because I read the book on her recommendation and then read it this time after she brought it up. Um, Hi, Daphne, if you're listening. I read all of this, but then... I love this book so much that I kept forgetting to take notes <laughs> and I would yeah. go like three chapters nonstop and then realize I had gotten too engrossed and was just yeah. sitting there like thinking my little thoughts without writing anything down <laughs> and had to backtrack. So <laughs> I'm the opposite. I, I I took more notes on this book than the rest of the series combined. 
But I'm with Phoebe. I came off reading this book, and I I had this thought multiple times while reading this book, where I was like, this book is just an absolute banger. Okay, so we've got a bit of a parallel with Sea of Monsters, where we start off with Percy going to school, immediately having a monster encounter, and him having to flee. Yep. But this time we've got Rachel there, too, who Percy met in the Titan's Curse at the Hoover Dam where he discovered that she is a mortal who can see through the mist. She sees that there are monsters, even before Percy does these monstrous cheerleaders that are servants of Hecate called Empusai. She freaks out and she runs away and Percy kind of follows her and she's having a whole thing where she's convinced Percy isn't going to believe her because she's seeing these horrible things. And it just made me think about like all of the times in her life she's probably seen horrible things. <laughs> Oh, yeah. And nobody has believed her. Because this is very much the, like, half-blood experience that I think Percy's had also. You know, minus them actually attacking him. Like, all of these horrible things he's seen or that have come after him that have, like, really adversely impacted him. Except for her, she's not a half-blood. So she never gets the, like, oh, you're actually a hero. Congratulations. Like, payoff of all the suffering (laughs) is just suffering. Yeah. It must have been haunting her ever since... Percy ran away from her at the Hoover Dam. Like, there was someone out there who definitely saw what I saw, and I'm never going to see him again. Percy gets kicked out of school in a fiery inferno again. And Annabeth's like, all right, let's just go to camp. It's fine. We'll call your mom later. They never get to go on their date. Right? So sad. I want to know what movie they were going to see. Oh, what year was it? This was 2008, I think. 2008. Were they going to see The Dark Knight? I bet they were going to see The Dark Knight. I'm going to Google this. On June 6th, 2009, a movie came out called When Did You Last See Your Father? <laughs> yeah, that's a good one. If only it took place in 2009. Oh, wait. Uh, we might be doing math wrong because the first book came out in 2005. The second one came out in 2006, but then the third one takes place also in 2000, like in the same year. And so it might just be 2007. Uh, okay. Oh, Surf's Up. They were seeing Surf's Up. I found the answer. It's Surf's Up. They were absolutely going to see Surf's Up. (laughs) Anyway, hard-hitting journalism. Okay, Percy and Annabeth head to camp. After seeing Surf's Up. No, they never got to see- They never got to see Surf's Up. They never got to see Surf's Up. And this is why Annabeth is in such a mood for the rest of the book. (laughs) This entire return to camp is so funny to me also. Because they get back- and Percy keeps being like, ugh, why would you hang out with Clarice? She's such a bully. And she's acting totally normal. <laughs> yeah, she's acting totally normal. And she's just like, oh, hey, Annabeth, <laughs> my friend. And Percy's like, "Yeah, what? When did this happen? As though he wasn't there. The end of the quest for the fleece. He was there. Yeah. It's just that his relationship with Clarice didn't get any better. So he was like, um. Everyone hates Clarice. I thought we <laughs> knew this. She bullied me. Yeah. You can really feel in these couple chapters how much Percy is missing by not going to camp year-round. Yeah. <laughs> like He feels really left out. It's what Fran mentioned last time, training-wise. Everyone there is, like, expecting an attack from Kronos and so is, like, battle-ready. <laughs> and Percy just comes in. <laughs> but it's also, like, Clarice and Annabeth are clearly cl- closer this time around. And Grover... Oh, yeah. Who's shorter than Percy now and has a girlfriend. I know. I thought for me, like, the most stark, interesting detail that is a good reminder of how much the status quo has shifted is Percy describes 
a 10 foot long scar in the marble pavilion that everyone kind of like avoids and is looking at. And that scar is basically the real reminder of what is to this point Percy's only like real regret in this series, which is Nico. And it's also really interesting that it's described as a scar and it's still there because it's something that's permanent that can't just be like magicked away like the rest of the things at camp have to heal it. And it's also really interesting to me that Rick used the word scar because that feels to me now reminiscent also of another scar in this series, which is Luke's, which when he returned from his quest is the sort of constant reminder of and the, a major like of a turning point in his life that like really changed his perception of camp and of things like safety. Mm-hmm. And then Percy goes to sleep, gets woken up in the middle of the night by a collect call iris message which is really funny like as a concept he throws in a drachma and he sees a vision of nico d'angelo so he percy describes him as saying he's looked like he's been living on the streets and now he's at the edge of the river Styx at the underworld and he's basically summoned a mysterious ghost trying to get his sister back and the ghost is telling him that it's pretty much impossible um it's never been done um, but you can't do an exchange. And Nico responds, I've already offered. Yeah. As in, he offered to take his sister's place in the underworld. Ten-year-old, he's ten. He's a ten-year-old boy. And they have a really interesting conversation as well, where this mysterious ghost figure says, no, you need to offer somebody who's cheated death. And Nico says... You're talking about murder. The ghost says, I'm talking about justice. And Nico says, that's still the same thing. Showing an incredible amount of wisdom for a 10-year-old. Because I feel like he thinks about this in a way that's even more clear-headed than like most of the characters. Because most of the characters in this book have hit a point where they don't blink as much at death. Yeah, he's got a pretty big sense of justice and judgment that I think actually sticks with him through the whole series. Like Even when the lines start to get blurry, he has a sort of moral code that he works within because i think the danger and violence in this world became real to him like very quickly after he got introduced to it and so it's almost more real to him than it is to a lot of characters because death and loss were one of his first experiences when he entered the mythological world so that's the lens that he looks at the violence and its consequences there through so we learn that Nico has been raising ghosts in an effort to speak to Bianca again, but she won't appear to him. Which is really interesting to me because there is, in mythology, there is like one example of this that I can think about where in the Aeneid, when Aeneas goes to the underworld, this is after he has a big falling out with Dido and she burns herself on a pyre because he left her. I hate the Aeneid. Um, he goes to the <laughs> underworld and she doesn't want to talk to him because she's like, fuck you. You left. I'm spurning you even in death. I'm going to go back to my first husband. Good for her. I'm, I'm trying to figure out why Bianca won't talk to him, though. I think she thinks that if she talked to him, it would only make things worse. Like confirming that she is a physical or like a, a real presence that's out there that he can find. That's true. Maybe she's trying to prevent him from coming in for her, coming for her. And she just wants to make the separation a real thing. Like if she showed up, it would only strengthen his connection to her. And she's trying to let him realize that it's over. Yeah. And we also finally get to find out 
what happened with Clarice's last book, where she went off on her own thing and came back, and we never actually found out what she was doing. What was she doing? She was in the labyrinth. Yeah, so they found an entrance to the labyrinth in, I think, in New Mexico or Arizona. She's from Phoenix, yeah. Because she found Chris Rodriguez, who we met in Sea of Monsters on Luke's ship, the Princess Andromeda, because he'd gone over to Luke's side. He'd come out, was babbling about Son of Poseidon, skulls, the floor healing him, someone named Mary, and she basically found him and nursed him back to health. Well, not back to relative health. Mental health is also kind of a big thing in this book, I feel like. So that was her secret mission. So she discovered the labyrinth. Her friend was deeply impacted by it, and she went to figure out what was going on. Like, she had her own full heroic journey uh-huh. off page. <laughs> so Labyrinth in mythology, and according to Percy Jackson, was created by an inventor named Daedalus, who lived during ancient Minoan times under King Minos. In mythology, he created a labyrinth because Minos's wife was tricked by the gods into having a half bull, half man creature named the Minotaur. And they created a labyrinth for him to live in. And every year they would sacrifice seven Athenian youths and maidens to the Minotaur. And in the original myth, Theseus slays the Minotaur, who's the king's son, and he pretends to be one of the youths and ends up um, working with the princess Ariadne, Minos' daughter, to slay the Minotaur, navigating the labyrinth, and freeing them from having to send sacrifices every year. It's my favorite myth. Oh, it's one of my favorites, too. <laughs> There's a lot of interludes in this book also. So we talked about the Nico interludes. So we get someone is mysteriously sending Percy Iris messages where he gets to see what Nico's up to. But then he also starts having visions of the past, which we saw him do last book with Hercules. And now he's dreaming about Daedalus. He sees Daedalus in Minoan times, getting imprisoned by the king Minos. The Minotaur has been killed up to this point by Theseus. Ariadne's escaped, and Minos is sort of blaming Daedalus. And Daedalus and his son Icarus are imprisoned in the labyrinth. And Minos says something very interesting he says something to the effect of, my minotaur is dead. The labyrinth needs a monster. You'll be the monster. It started my wheels turning here because there's a few characters in this book in particular that are demigods and also monsters. And it made me start to think about how that line gets crossed, not in the philosophical sense of like, when does a person become a monster, but specifically from a world building sense. When do they stop behaving like people and mortals and when do they start behaving like monsters food for thought but that line really made me think yeah i was thinking about it because we know that daedalus is not in the labyrinth for the majority of this book so i was like so who's the monster in here Mm. and then before we enter the labyrinth though we get the introduction to our third interlude set of this book there's three different kinds of interludes that get interspaced in the chapters Mm -hmm. of Percy Dreams. There's Nico, there's Daedalus, and there's Luke, our best friend. And Kronos is saying, I'm going to lead the vanguard myself into the labyrinth to attack camp. And Luke is really trying to subtly avoid Kronos leading the army himself. And Mm -hmm. he's, he's, he's seeming a little desperate. Wonder why. He never wanted to actually go through with this part. No. 
he did not want to go through with this part. We know that from the last book that he didn't want to go through with this part because of what he says to Thalia. It felt like there was kind of a parallel between the Luke and Nico scenes a little bit in the sense that both of them are being manipulated by older, mm. ancient, clever forces. And neither of them like want to fully give themselves over, but also don't feel like they have a choice. Mm-hmm. And both of the agendas are bring myself back to life. Yeah. So finally, we enter the labyrinth. And this whole time, Annabeth has this working theory that Daedalus's workshop, because um, basically... <laughs> we didn't explain why they're going. So <laughs> it's introduced like later in the story, but like the bigger the group, the more likely you are to get lost. So an army, probably not going to make it all the way through. So they have to go find Daedalus to make sure he doesn't pledge support to the Titan army and lead them through to camp. Because if that happens, it, it's they're done so. So Annabeth's leading the quest and she got a prophecy that she refuses to tell anybody the last line to, and it rhymes with breath. Not a good sign. This is a Jason situation all over again. <laughs> the what situation? Who's Jason? Uh, I really love this depiction of the labyrinth. Oh, yeah. And it, specifically the way that Percy describes that when it's quiet, you can hear the labyrinth groaning like it's growing yeah. and moving and adding new tunnels. And so I started thinking about the labyrinth as a living force. And wondering, why does it lead you where it leads you? Because the more I was reading, I was thinking, I don't think that it's malicious in the way that they are kind of anticipating it being. Because it leads them, I mean, spoilers for the rest of the book, but it leads them to Nico and to Pan and to Mount Tam at just the right moment and to Grover and Tyson at the end. So I started thinking that maybe it was taking them where it believed they needed to be or like specific members of the party needed to be or like taking you to the things that you need to see to force you to confront a truth or a weakness or something mm. and so that was how I interpreted this first room that they end up in yeah so they show up in a room that's Roman a lot of Roman stuff in this book they're introduced to the god Janus the Roman god. For those who don't know, Janus is where we get the name of the month, January, which makes sense because he's looking backwards on the old year and forwards on the new, and it mean, it literally means door. And he basically shows up and tells Annabeth, you're going to have to make a choice, and it may kill you. you got to make a choice. And Annabeth's getting really flustered. This is the half-made thought that I had while mm. reading this was like, why is the labyrinth starting her off here? I, I had a similar question. I do think if the labyrinth is leading them specifically to people and places that they need to see, leading Annabeth directly to facing her own indecision, first of all, evil, because it's a symptom of being an overthinker and I understand her. <laughs> <laughs> I think on like a macro scale in terms of writing, it sets up the idea of never knowing which door you need to take and the indecision being the thing that kills you. And it really mm-hmm. sets the vibe where it's like, no, this is a maze. You have no, you have no idea where you're going. Who knows where you'll end up? So Hera shows up, gives them some sandwiches, and basically tells them, like, hey, I'm helping you out. For no, no reason. <laughs> and leads them onward to Alcatraz. Now, first of all, we have a break in the case. So in The Lightning Thief, Kronos is talking in a language that sounds like rocks scraping together that Percy says is like Greek, but much older. 
But Campe is talking a language that sounds like rock scraping together. And Tyson says that it's an old tongue that Mother Earth spoke to her children and the Titans. So it's not a language we know that's mortal. So thanks, Rick. We meet the jailer and Tyson gets really excited because the person being jailed is one of the hundred-handed ones from Greek mythology. Basically, in the origin story of Greek mythology, Gaia and Uranus, the sky and the earth, first she gives birth to the Titans and then she gives birth to the Cyclops. And then after that, she gives birth to the hundred-handed ones. And historically as well, the Cyclops and the hundred-handed ones fought with the gods against the Titans. So we meet... Aside from Kronos, probably the most ancient character in the series to date, Briaris. He He's supposed to be like the size of a mountain, and he's just in a cell in Alcatraz. And he's, because he's been in prison so long, he's dejected and really without hope. And so Tyson repeatedly says, you're so strong. Why don't you just bust out of here? Let me help you. And Briaris just refuses to try. This was why I thought, like, I was writing down every encounter and who the labyrinth was leading to that specific place. And this one was Tyson's, obviously. I think so that he would have to face something that optimism couldn't save. That was the the reasoning that I assigned to it. Oh. I had a different thought. Okay. Basically, something I noticed over the course of this book is that every single one of our main characters meets their hero and has to come to terms with an aspect of them. Yes, that was also something I was going to bring up. (laughs) Although I wasn't sure what Percy's would be. I thought his encounter with Theseus was that one. He gets to see Theseus. He doesn't get to meet Theseus, but he does get to like see Theseus. Yeah, I guess I was thinking on the level of like, oh, the labyrinth is leading each of them to their heroes. I was thinking a lot about the labyrinth this time around. That's fair. I do like that read on it, though. I thought maybe the hero was Antaeus. I feel like Percy has such a like idealized version of what it is to be the son of Poseidon that it was like mm. breaking that or just bringing him to Luke because he used to be his hero. Brings Nico to Percy. No. Yeah, that's, I don't think that's true, though. I think that actually the way that I was thinking about Nico and Percy was almost in parallel to the way that Percy is thinking of Luke at this point, because both of them see them as this older camper who you looked up to as a kid, who you really thought of as like the, the picture perfect hero. And then they betrayed you and you are now left with the consequences of that. I don't know. I, I feel like both Luke doesn't work as the hero that Percy is looking for and Percy doesn't work as the hero that Nico is looking for in the labyrinth because they've already had that illusion broken for them. Yeah, but Nico is sort of who Percy is looking for in the labyrinth, so this is why I want to talk about it later. I kind of want to unpack it a bit more. Okay. Basically, they they try to defeat Campe, who is like a primordial monster. There's no way they're killing this lady. And No. <laughs> Um, They managed to escape her, but they're unable to convince Briaris to join them. And Tyson is really disappointed. So they get to their next stop in the labyrinth after that. Yeah, they find the remains of Nico's last summoning ritual and follow Mm -hmm. it up to Triple G Ranch, where we find Eurytion, Garion, and Nico. Basically, there's a son of Ares who's been made immortal that's important and they have a two-headed dog and they meet garyon who has three torsos and one head there's a lot of people with multiple heads in this book i made the same note it's not even that it's just like 
doubles in general like mm-hmm. Briaris with his 50 faces and then if you think about it on another level there's like Luke and Kronos or like Daedalus and Quintus like there's a lot of the multiple sides of a person so basically, Garion has been talking with Nico, um, who's apparently been negotiating for Daedalus' location. And then it turns out he wants to d- double-cross Nico and basically give him over to the Titan army. And Percy makes a bet with him about cleaning the Aegean stables. And Percy's, like, so confident, like, I know exactly how to do it. There's water over there. I got this. And he goes down, and the Naiad's already waiting for him, like, don't you fucking dare. The ecosystem, Percy. The ecosystem. And he's basically like, okay, well, I guess I'm not going to screw you over for this like Hercules did, but what do I do? And she points to the ground, and she shows him that it used to be a seabed. Right. That once upon a time this used to be covered in water i'm assuming this is the part you want to talk about this is the part i want to talk about because here is where i think we get the introduction of another contender for percy's fatal flaw Mm, interesting which i don't have like a cute short way to explain this (laughs) but it's his vulnerability to the allure of his own power and the feeling of being powerful Mm. combined with his complete lack of (laughs) self-control or internal understanding of when he should stop because in this book we see percy a couple of times actually reach where you'd think yeah. there'd be a limit on his power but we'll learn there really isn't one uh-huh. and because percy is often drawn in by that and doesn't have an internal flag that he should stop it threatens to get him in trouble a lot and here that moment is that percy armed with the knowledge that what is now farmland used to be an ocean uses that to draw seawater up from the soil in geysers and despite the tugging in his stomach which should be an internal flag to stop percy summons more and more (laughs) he even hits the point where he's like i should stop it's all gone but he just he he doesn't because he says i wrote down the quote he says the tugging sensation became more intense painful even but there was something exhilarating about seeing all that salt water i had made this i had brought the ocean to this hillside And he only actually stops when he hears the horses begging him to stop and sees that the water is starting to drain toward the river. Um, And that's what finally snaps him out of Mm -hmm. it. And it's almost too late at that point. It's almost too late. He's only barely able to get it back. Yeah. And this is something that we'll see a couple times from Percy. And so I want to flag it as a contender for Fatal Flaw because I think he likes to feel powerful because he's had so little control in his life. And with power Mm -hmm. like this, he knows he can take control of a situation and provide his friends with something powerful enough to protect them and all that. But because he has no control Mm -hmm. over it and will almost always cross the line, it's rare that Percy feels that tug in his stomach and it doesn't end badly for him. Yeah. And that reminds me as well of the fact that I think this book is the first time he's really like reclaiming being the main character. Like the last two, he's kind of had to Mm -hmm. take a back seat. But even though this is Annabeth's quest, Percy is the main character of this book. <laughs> yeah, this is another labyrinth thing where I was just uh-huh. really digging into the <laughs> into the labyrinth and thinking about the like what metaphorical labyrinths exist within this book and like taking the labyrinth as a maze that leads you wherever it likes. You can interpret it as f- sort of fate in a physical form. 
so that Percy throughout this book is sort of navigating having something else leading you and having no real idea of like where you're going now that he's accepted that he's a child of the prophecy he now has an official fate that he is aware of because this is like the direct follow-up also to again he literally says like this is my prophecy i'm choosing it it doesn't matter what fate is like i choose it right and so now that he's claimed it he now has to navigate that sort of being in the dark about where you're going but knowing that something else is leading you somewhere I think you're very spot on there. Also, metaphorically, it's really good because both fate and the labyrinth are what you navigate with string. Mm-hmm. But um, then he cleans out the staples and Garion is basically like, uh, well, doesn't matter. I want my money. I'm selling out Nico. And Percy is mm-hmm. like, okay, decides he's going to fight this guy, stabs him, immediately realizes that he can't kill him with just a sword and is like, uh-oh. And he goes and grabs a bow, which is how Hercules kills him in the Hercules myth. And Percy's like, I'm not really an archer. <laughs> yeah. But he play- he prays to both Apollo and Artemis. And he's like, let me take this guy out. And he shoots him through all three of his chests and kills him. He has a really interesting conversation after killing Garion with um, Eurytion Garion's sort of like sable hand slash employee who is an immortal, who is a son of Ares, who was given immortality as a gift from his father. But he's now talking about how he regrets that choice because now he's tied to Garion and the ranch. It's an interesting take on, um, it's a trope in Greek mythology for a god to offer a mortal immortality. It happens a few times, including to Hercules. Moving on. (laughs) And then they get to debrief a bit with Nico. And that's when Percy realizes that Bianca has been sending him Iris messages about Nico. They summon her, at which point uh, the ghost, who is King Minos, returns and is trying to basically disrupt the ritual. And Bianca basically tells Nico he needs to stop being angry at Percy because it's just misplaced anger. Because what he's really angry at is that she joined the Hunters of Artemis. And he needs to stop trying to bring her back and move on. And then we get another Daedalus dream also where Daedalus has a prodigy nephew named Perdix, mm-hmm. who he just is annoyed by because he's really talented and murders him. You know, he's sort of, again, it's that thing, this idea that he's going to be surpassed in knowledge and in cleverness, and he can't take it. He can't handle it. I think it's also the fact that he can feel his mortal body failing him. Yeah. And that's something that really bothers him is that like you know his eyes aren't seeing as well and his hands shake and like that was part of why it was so difficult for him to put on Icarus's wings in the first place mm-hmm. and now in this dream it's only gotten worse he can feel that like he is physically fading away and and actually seeing someone surpass him in both wisdom and in youth yeah And then Percy wakes up from that dream and says that Daedalus' annoying nephew reminds him of Nico. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then we get the Sphinx scene, which I thought was really funny because it's Rick just coming really hard at No Child Left Behind. (laughs) (laughs) And it's just a great scene for Annabeth also because she keeps like offhandedly answering the questions and then she's like, this isn't a fair test. What the fuck is going on? And everyone else is like, Annabeth, you're getting it right. Stop complaining. She wants a challenge. She wants to prove (laughs) that she can make it through this. (laughs) Oh, right. They're following. We didn't mention they're following 
a mechanical spider that was given to them by Eurytion that's going to lead them to Hephaestus's forges because they think that Hephaestus might know where Daedalus is. Hephaestus tells them that he'll help them if they go and check out the forge that he has inside of Mount St. Helens because he knows that someone's been using it but every time he goes there there's no one there and so they start that way but on the way uh Grover feels the presence of Pan so they all decide to split up and Grover and Tyson go in the direction of Pan and Percy and Annabeth head into the volcano my main thoughts about this scene were actually about Annabeth Mm. because Annabeth was going into this quest very aware that she was going to lose someone on it. And that's why she was reluctant to bring Percy Grover or Tyson. So in that scene where they're splitting up, you know, Percy's sort of like, oh, well, Grover needs to do this. Let's let him let's let him do that. But Annabeth is like very against it. It's because she knows that like she is losing someone on this quest. And then by the end of this scene in the volcano, she is left alone in the labyrinth thinking that this was it. She was afraid to bring any of them into the labyrinth because of her prophecy and she just lost all three of them like at once. Mm. And so I was more thinking, Annabeth is now alone in the labyrinth. That's crazy. How is she going to get out? <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, and Percy's like doing something over there. <laughs> and Percy blows up a volcano. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he like does something. I don't know. I didn't pay attention to that. <laughs> Proceed causes the volcano to erupt by calling water to him despite there being no water around. He is the water, Phoebe, which is yes. why he is resistant to fire damage. Right? That was crazy. But um, I want to know if Percy is capable of using his dad's Earthshaker powers because Hephaestus says later on that this was Percy using Earthshaker powers. I felt also like he maybe started I think it to me was a continuation of the Triple G rant situation where he yeah. realized he can break the rules of reality a little bit. Yeah. It's it's always paired with that description of the tugging in his stomach. Yeah. Maybe coming off of that he's realizing like I am not just a child of a god from a human form. I'm a child of the like the actual sea and because he believes that that is why he's kind of able to do what he does and is able to kind of at first resist getting damaged by fire because he's he is the sea he's not made of flesh and then he's able to bring the sea to him i also want to flag because like no one comes back to this but annabeth like fully like she it says kisses him and at first i was like on the cheek and it's like no she just fully kisses him and he like like, doesn't even think about that like he does but he never even like thinks about like what does this mean because percy again he's like that's my friend she kisses him because he's basically like listen go off i'm about to get on my bullshit in a way like You've never seen me on my bullshit the way I'm about to be. (laughs) She just kisses him. And then there's this really funny line where Percy is like, I wish I could have just stared into space for the rest of the day being like, what just happened? But unfortunately, he was about to be set on fire. But this is where he had a moment where he was gonna, he stopped himself from fully letting loose at the ranch. And this is the moment where he's like, all right, let's let's see what happens if I don't stop. And it's so impactful that he like he doesn't even actually know what he did. No, and it's also kind of implied that this would have been it, but he's kind of given a second chance via Calypso. So Percy is thrown by the eruption into the sky, 
ends up landing in the water by a non-existent island where he's rescued and then sort of nursed back to health by Calypso. This is one of my favorite chapters in this book and in this whole series. Mm. I love this chapter because it is such a... It's just as much a pause and like breath of fresh air for the reader as it is for Percy because it's like suddenly we're no longer underground. We spend an entire chapter dedicated to sitting at peace with no enemies, no battles, just Mm -hmm. like healing from the past 11 chapters. It's sort of a unique moment that we get to have with Percy where you get to see what happens when Percy is given peace and like who is Percy when he's allowed to slow down. I, I think we see that he's actually happy to slow himself down and would actually be content with what he has on Calypso's island if it weren't for the fact that he'd be leaving his loved ones behind. But what lures him in here, he says, I could stay here forever, disappear from the earth. I could live with Calypso, with invisible servants, tending to my every need. We could grow flowers in the garden and talk to songbirds and walk on the beach under perfect blue skies. No war, no prophecy, no more taking sides. That gentle, like, slow lifestyle is actually something that he's very taken in by. Yeah, I think it is interesting because when I went into reading this again, I wasn't expecting the offer to feel tempting as a reader, like in Percy's brain. But Mm. I think it it was. Yeah. There's a moment where he's he's like seriously considering it and it feels like earned. I think it's also because it comes on the back of their other conversation where Calypso is talking about how she became imprisoned and she's talking about how she sided with her father in the war between the titans and the god and her father is atlas the titan and he says in response to that but the titans are evil and Mm -hmm. she says are they percy all the time and then she asks him the ever important question which is do you support the gods because they are good or because they're your family yep i think that question breaks percy's brain a little bit i think it also just breaks like kind of the whole series a little bit (laughs) Mm -hmm. because it is again pointing out this thing why are we holding them up? Why are we supporting them? Why are we giving them our devotion when they can't even be a family with us? You shouldn't have to beg for your parents to like acknowledge you even a tiny, tiny amount the way so many of them have. But then she's also talking about the fact that her prison, it's a prison, but as far as prisons go, it's not so bad. It is kind of a paradise in a way. But she also says the gods visit time from time to time and they bring word of the outside world, but they leave and I cannot. And that's the big difference. And it also makes me think about, again, agency and the kind of comparison also of like Camp Half-Blood, at least in The Lightning Thief, of yes, this is a safe space, but can you leave? Right. And also Percy has that moment where he thinks to himself, am I too dangerous? And like, that's part of why he thinks about staying is that he knows Mm. that he has that, that part of him that can't, he can't control. That is extremely powerful. It's not just because it would free him from his prophecy and from the war, but because, you know, this experience in the labyrinth has made him realize that there is something else inside him. One of the things that I thought was interesting about what Percy considers before saying no. He says, no war, no prophecy, no more taking sides. As if taking sides is something that's hard for him. Uh Uh-huh. And I just, I thought that was interesting. I was like, are you having um, some difficulty with that, Percy? (laughs) (laughs) So, unlike Thalia, Percy turns down the opportunity to leave it Mm -hmm. all behind. (laughs) Yeah. And leaves Calypso and returns to camp. Just in time for his funeral. 
Yes, very Tom Sawyer of him. So they decide to head back into the labyrinth because Tyson and Grover are still in there and they have to stop Luke. So they seek out Rachel because she can see through the mist and mm-hmm. Percy got the hint from Hephaestus that what was actually leading Theseus through the maze was a mortal princess who could Not see through. Yep. <laughs> and Annabeth just like immediately hates her. It's she's just being weird and jealous. And like everybody knows why. Like everybody yeah. knows except Percy. <laughs> but I also think it's like I Kyron points it out either before this or after this that Annabeth is very territorial about her friends and like her people. And she doesn't want other people infiltrating the group and she wants her people to just like be her people. And mm-hmm. it's a it's a little bit of an insecurity that she has that goes beyond just whatever her feelings are for Percy at the moment. Mm, I think that's true. So Rachel leads them down back into the labyrinth and she can clearly see the way to Daedalus's workshop, which happens to be straight through the arena it's also the arena is presented multiple times in the book as an inevitable like place you have to go through you can't go through without eventually encountering it which i thought was really interesting how i interpreted it was that the maze has rerouted itself so that you have to walk through here just this time like it's not like you always have to walk through here to get to daedalus's workshop but this time around you specifically have to walk through here And so to me, this was what the labyrinth offered Percy and also offered Mm. Luke as what they needed to see. Percy has to go in there and understand that being Poseidon's son doesn't automatically make you good. And like that sort of alternate version of himself. And what Luke has to confront, he is being forced to give and give for the entertainment of someone else that ancient who is clearly not going to let them go and i wondered if it was the labyrinth almost warning him that he is in a very dangerous situation right now and that this is kind of his last chance to get out he's going to give and give and he's never actually going to get what he made the deal for which in the scene it's like you'll grant us passage out if we keep providing you with entertainment but then it's just over and over more entertainment more entertainment and it's pretty clearly implied that he has no plans of letting them out and so Maybe the labyrinth is putting him in that situation to kind of make him realize, like, where he is metaphorically at the moment. Hmm. I actually think, okay, I like I like looking at this whole encounter with the, the with that lens, though. I think also, like, the entertainment aspect really sticks out to me because both the ancient Greeks and Romans are really well known for sports and spectacle. And it's also one of the ways we in our world now actually still perpetuate their old traditions you know like the olympics ran every four years in ancient greece with only two breaks in the cycle for 1200 years straight Uh, it only really ended like during the collapse of the roman empire but you know when they began excavating the ancient classical world in the 1800s that was a huge point of revival and so they you know they brought it back but they also imposed a lot of their own ideals and rules on it the biggest one being the amateur rule because for a while you could not compete in the olympics if you were paid or unprofessional as an athlete because for them you know work is dirty figures in you know the ancient world were philosophers they just languished about they were just like them when like the reality is they were just as well paid 
and you know just as full of like sponsorships and professional as you know we think of professional athletes today it's really an example of rick's definition of the west at that time really finding that old flame again and reviving it of the ancient west so it's interesting here in this scene too that this is all like a pageant almost of a mashup of a lot of different really iconic ancient sports traditions both from ancient Greece and Rome but all kind of as we've seen them in our pop culture like for example a gladiatorial fight like you know in our pop culture we think of it as um, they were always fought to the death when they weren't like can you imagine if every single boxing match ever had to end with one of the two boxers dying today like it's just not economically sound likewise you know the dracaena that percy initially fights is dressed you know greg says classic gladiator style but like she's dressed as a radiaris which is only one of the many kinds of gladiators but it's one you see all the time because it's really iconic with the net and trident and it looks a lot more different to the others that it's more distinct it's also for example what finico dare is in the hunger games fun fact and you know with antaeus as well it's a similar thing where we take this ancient greek sport of pankration which was in the original olympics but it's probably one of the last ones added and yeah i'll talk a bit more about that in a moment but it is really interesting to me and then they're like, okay, let's send you, not a monster, but our fave, Ethan Nakamura. Ethan Nakamura. Ethan is a son of Nemesis, goddess of revenge, who was found inside the labyrinth. I don't know if they ever explain why he was in the labyrinth in the first place, but he's found wandering the labyrinth by the Titan army. And they, I guess, give him their pitch and he decides that he wants to join up. And so he becomes who they are trying to make their last soul to raise Kronos but first before they do that he's doing this to prove himself it's like a full circle moment when he's fighting Ethan and he uses the disarming technique Luce chose him in the yeah. first book on mm-hmm. Ethan and insists on sparing him even though Ethan keeps saying like no it's fine just kill me they'll kill us both otherwise it's it's a proxy fight. All of this is a proxy fight between Percy and Luke. I love that moment because I we know that Luke was watching his sword fighting pretty closely because he comments mm-hmm. on it. And then Percy goes and makes that move. <laughs> I know. I know. I remember when I was reading these books when I was a kid. This is the first time I remember really being like, oh my god. Because I feel like up until this point, every death, every encounter with Luke or other half-bloods on Luke's side have always been either non-lethal or very clearly like good guys versus bad guys life-threatening situation this was the first time in this series I feel like as a kid I was like yeah this guy's on the side of the titans but he just joined up like he seems like a pretty chill dude he's not evil he's just here because he has nowhere else to go and Percy having to face him in the arena I remember like that that it being a half-blood specifically who already also had clearly been like hurt in some way because of his eye patch it was really striking to me as a kid and then he challenges Antaeus to a fight so Antaeus says oh you're gonna fight me (laughs) I've been fighting since the first Pankration and then he says what a Pankration apparently is in the Rick Riordan verse, because this is not what a Pankration was in the Greek Olympics. 
was no rules, fighting to the death, no holds bars. It used to be an Olympic sport, is the quote. That's not that's not what it is. Pankration was uh, kind of like the equivalent of Greek MMA fighting, where there weren't no rules, and you didn't fight to the death. That's not to say people didn't die during these matches, but that it had the same two rules as boxing and wrestling, which were no eye gouging, no going for the genitals. Because as you might remember, they were doing this naked. And then they had to add a third rule after a certain event transpired, which was no disemboweling. <laughs> they fought barehanded. I want you to remember that when I say no disemboweling had to be added. But anyway, there were rules, and it wasn't to the death. You would fight until someone got knocked out or yielded. and But there was pretty much no holds barred, so that is correct. And that was the Olympic sport. Anyway, but what's also interesting is that Antaeus was like known for wrestling in the, in the Hercules version of the story. He's able to use strength to beat Antaeus. He basically figures out that he can hold him above the earth just by holding him up and basically chokes him out while keeping his feet off the ground. And that's how Hercules beats Antaeus. Percy cannot do that. Like, in a way, they, he sort of beats Antaeus the same way Hercules does, because that's his weakness. But this is, like, I feel like one of the only times he really doesn't do what's in the myth. He does something completely unique to him, and he is forced to use wisdom, and he is forced to have to outsmart and outmanipulate this ancient creature. And the way he does it is really good because you really see him using his wits and specifically his skill in manipulation. I almost wondered if he'd gotten like a momentary blessing from Athena <laughs> because the way he's weaving all of that and crawling all over there, I was like, that is... That is true. He does say that like, it must have just been how good I am at tangling things. The thing that really got me that I thought was really cool was specifically the Riptide thing. Because we've seen him use Riptide in interesting ways, but he hasn't really ever used it as, like, part of a fighting... Like, I feel like we haven't really seen Mm -hmm. Percy strategize a lot on page. I think I disagree with that because I think that Percy always, always... His first instinct is to try and think his way past Mm. any obstacles or enemies that he encounters. He's usually trying to think at least, like, three steps ahead while fighting. A lot of his fighting technique comes down to strategy. Maybe it's not that this is like one of the few times we get to see it, but rather this is the time it's like the most pronounced to me because he is so unable to do any damage with physical skill. He has two things at his disposal. He knows that Antaeus doesn't know that Riptide appears in his pocket, and he has a moment where he loses the sword, and he's like, all I have to work with is the fact that he thinks I'm going to need to go for my sword, but he doesn't know I don't have to. And with those two pieces of information, he is able to think his way out of the solution and execute it to a really cool degree. Like, I cannot wait to get to see this. This is one of the, this is probably the scene I am most looking forward to seeing on the TV show. (laughs) This whole scene. I love this whole scene. I'm curious about, because this is actually something that I was thinking about the way that Percy describes Luke in this scene he's acting like perfectly normal (laughs) like he's like sneering down at him and like wearing that cocky smile it it was a moment where we realize how unreliable Percy might be as a narrator because after this scene Annabeth says something was wrong with Luke did you notice the way he was acting there was something wrong with him he looked nervous and you kind of realize 
just how much Percy's bias is skewing the story. And it's like this little break in what we've been thinking is the reality of the book. Because if you took Percy's word, you would think that Luke was acting like his old self in this scene. Yeah. You do see it in moments, and it's when he's like interacting with Annabeth in this scene. But Annabeth is like, no, something was very wrong with him in that. Didn't you notice it? And it was specifically her saying, did you notice? And I was like, he didn't notice, actually. I read that chapter and he did not notice. And switching gears a little bit, reading this, like after reading the diary of Luke, made me crazy. We've had a lot of conversations about Luke and his want for glory. And we've talked a lot about all the ways you get glory, all of how you get and how that is in a way the path to like immortality and agency and it's really interesting to me the struggle that luke is going through from that lens specifically because i feel like the giving yourself over in body and like full like giving up the use of like yourself basically to chronos it's the ultimate way to erase that like you're never going to get glory from that he is going to lose himself completely. He's never going to see the world he's making. He's never going to get to be the hero as himself. And the fact that he's not even able to like say goodbye to her, but like he wants to. He mm. wants to get his chance to talk to her and to just be able to at least have her know what happened to him and for her to have that legacy of him. And then he, he doesn't even get to do that. I did wonder if his deal with Kronos if he thinks like once Kronos takes over my body I'm I'm done like I'm gone mm-hmm. or if he thinks that Kronos is letting him go at the end of all of this I think there's a line okay he says soon you will rule the world of gods and mortals hmm. so I wonder if he thinks he and Kronos will forever be in this form and that he will no longer be himself or if he thinks once this is done, Kronos will be able to take on a, a different form and I will be there to rule the world of gods and mortals. But at the same time, I do think he probably still thinks that even if he is gone, they will tell that story because he was essential to bringing Kronos to power. But he won't get to be the one to set the narrative. Yes. Maybe what it is is he knows that no matter what happens, he's about to lose Annabeth. Like, there's no way he will be able to explain it to her after because he doesn't mm-hmm. know what Kronos is going to do in his body. He, in his brain, if he can just explain it to her, then he'll at least have potentially not destroyed that relationship. It's unfortunate that there's a whole scene between now and I open a coffin. But so they escape the arena. Rachel continues to lead them through the labyrinth. He has another final Kronos dream. And this one, he's like, Kronos is like almost physical. And then Kronos says something absolutely wild to Percy, which is, you have assured my rise. What? We need to do an entire breakdown of like Kronos's. We Well, I feel like we, we've already talked about this and we're definitely going to do like a wrap up episode on the series when we're done with everything. I can finally like talk about everything. And one of the items on the agenda is, what was Kronos's plan? Let's track this. What's going on? Because I'm just like, what do you mean? Yeah. Like, it's like he's saying as though, like, now, after all of this, you finally assured my rise. Yeah. I. It was as if, like, that meeting with Luke had been, like, the final yeah. nail in the coffin or nail out of the coffin. 
And I was like, but they barely talk. But I have, we'll tease it out. No, you know what it was? Duh, it was uh, sparing Ethan. Because Ethan is the last soul that he needs uh, to rise. Interesting. Okay, that's less fun, though. So we're going to dig deeper. Yeah, let's think of something else. Um, <laughs> like, you're right, but, like, let's pretend you're wrong. If Luke had gotten the chance to talk to Annabeth, it would have changed his mind. Mm. And because Percy won in the battle, Luke didn't get to talk to Annabeth, and Luke didn't change his mind. There's the more fun version. <laughs> okay. I feel like there's even... We can dig even more. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, let me... <laughs> And they finally find Daedalus's workshop. And this is when Annabeth gets to meet her hero. And <laughs> she loses it. She gets so mad in this scene. So we get the reveal that Quintus is Daedalus. I mean, this is kind of where Daedalus's struggle with his own failing body. You learn mm-hmm. where that kind of landed him. What I thought was interesting was when he shows them the wiring inside of his arm. Mm-hmm. There are three reactions. Rachel's is, that's amazing. Uh, Percy's is, that's weird. And Annabeth's is, that's not natural. Mm. I think the one that really stuck out to me was Annabeth. You know, like, she's constantly in awe of the inventions that Daedalus comes up with. But this one is where it's like, you've gone too far. Yeah. And I mean, cheating death is obviously, like, a pretty big thing in most mythologies. That's, like, the one major taboo. I don't know. It's an interesting. It's more of a philosophical question, but like, why is death the lion? And then to that end, yeah. like, it feels like what Kronos is able to offer is a way to cheat death because he's like the god of time. I think what's really interesting also is the confrontation between Daedalus and Annabeth and everything. But he basically says Kronos's offer was to give Daedalus a prized position in the underworld and to let him actually cheat death. This is something that even Hades can't really give him. And for Daedalus, it's that guarantee. Because I feel like he still feels dogged by death. And, like, I think the other thing that really seals it is when Annabeth says, oh, no, no, what convinces him in this scene? No, it's in this scene. What convinces him, like, not to go through with it in the end? Maybe this is it. Maybe, like, again, we've seen both with Icarus and Perdix. Both of them, Daedalus is both of their heroes, in addition to, like, being their parents. And I think, again, we have Annabeth, who is Daedalus's, Daedalus is her hero. Mm. And him having to confront somebody who should idolize him, who is also blessed by Athena, who would understand. And them looking at him and saying, you've gone too far. Mm -hmm. And I think, oh, my God. You know what it is? (laughs) Because that's also the moment that the labyrinth brings, finally, Nico to Daedalus. So Nico, who's been seeking Daedalus the whole time for his quest, this is the final moment. This is the moment the labyrinth actually gives it to him, not because this is what Nico needs, but it's because that's what Daedalus needs. Because there's that moment in that line where Percy mentions how much Perdix reminds him of Nico. Nico, who oh. is kind of a symbol of youth kind of cut off too short. And Nico comes back and Daedalus has to reconfront his own weakest moment and that's what turns the tides because he's finally able to make a different decision mm. i think this is also part of the uh, another one of the metaphorical <laughs> labyrinths that we have going on here a lot of the characters going through the labyrinth this is a, a sort of theme that we see going through especially the end of this book characters trying to navigate grief 
and the labyrinth as you know a, a force that can drive you mad that's like built to keep you in there as like a sort of representation of trying to navigate grief mm. and that a lot of that is true for Daedalus but it's also true for Grover after Pan it'll be true for Annabeth after Luke mm -hmm. it's true for Nico there are a lot of characters wandering the labyrinth just trying to find their way out of grief mm -hmm. and I think that that's a, a big one for Daedalus I guess that's kind of skipping ahead but well I think no what you're saying makes total sense because I think if we're thinking about the Odyssey as a story of abandonment, then I think like the same thing being grief for the story of the labyrinth is extremely true. Because as I mentioned when I was describing the original myth, like it's about sacrifice victims ultimately. It's about the way the story ends. You know, Theseus is able to destroy the Minotaur, leaves Ariadne behind on his way home. And then he comes home and the last kind of tragic element of the story is that his father had told him when he gets back, he needs to fly white sails so that he'll know that Theseus is returning safe because usually the ships would fly black sails when they returned from dropping off the sacrificial victims, you know, as a sign of mourning. And Theseus, in all of the confusion, totally forgot to change the sails. And so Aegeus sees the black sails and he throws himself into the sea. At Cape Sunion, which is a temple to Poseidon. I might have taken Phoebe there when she came to visit me in Greece. It's fine. You guys should check it out. The water's pretty cold, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she went swimming. She was like, I'm going swimming. And I was like, Phoebe, it's so cold. What are you doing? And she was like, I don't care. I'm at the temple of Poseidon and I'm not going to swim. Like, <laughs> But, um, you know, and Theseus comes home in triumph only to have to be, again, walloped in grief. Likewise, Daedalus, his entire story that we've seen as well is one of grief and like that is what built the labyrinth yeah i really like that interpretation and i kind of want to go back and talk more about that because that's this is what we should have been talking about the whole time i'm sorry i should have brought it up earlier <laughs> i want to do kind of a wrap-up as well where we explore each character and what they kind of what their journey is through the labyrinth and how it relates to grief maybe that's the way we should do it so okay. let's come back to that in a sec so the best chapter is next. Oh my god. <laughs> so they're able to defeat Minos, which is great. And uh, good for Nico. Oh, I love personal growth. They're going back through the labyrinth to warn camp, but they can stop right outside Mount Tam. Percy's like, I gotta go. So Percy uses Annabeth's invisibility cap and sneaks into the Titan base where he finds that golden casket that is said to contain Kronos's new body that we've been hearing about throughout the whole book. Daedalus made an automaton, like it can be a thing. Yeah, they, we've been hearing throughout the book that it's nearly fully formed. So Percy decides that he needs to open the coffin and kill whatever's inside before it can wake up. And it's just like this build up where it's really building up to this, like what's in this coffin? It's been a mystery for three books now. It's like this larger than life, horrible, monstrous thing beyond comprehension. Like what could be in it? It's pieces of a Titan. Like what does it even look like? And Percy opens it and it's just Luke. When I first read this, I remember like freaking out. I feel like this to me is like the ultimate like archetypical reveal. Like whenever I think of a good reveal, it's this. Rereading it, you can like absolutely see all of the clues and it's like- There's so many, it's so good. It's so it's good. It's all over the place. But it, he gets you so good with the like, oh, they must be building a body. Like, here's uh, all the hints that they're building a body. It's <laughs> so good. Like, oh, my God. Rick, you really did something here. I <laughs> he did. Here is where I want to bring it back to the Theseus myth and the way this book kind of skirts it. Yeah. <laughs> because it's 
frustrating reading these books because the further we get into them, the further we get from seeing what's going on in Luke's mind. Mm -hmm. This book especially, we don't get to see much Luke at all. And so I, this is how I've sort of hacked into what Luke's thinking right now. I think there's a, a clear parallel between Percy and Theseus. Like from the beginning, like they're both sons of Poseidon mm -hmm. raised by their mothers who don't know their fathers and are trying to prove themselves to them. And they're known for outwitting their enemies like the Procrustes story is a Theseus story mm. and it's also a crucial part of our introduction to Percy like we talked about in our first episode but Percy really isn't thinking about Theseus going into the labyrinth he's thinking about Daedalus mm -hmm. and so I started to think if anyone's going into the labyrinth focusing on Theseus it's probably Luke both because of the way that he's fixated on getting Ariadne's thread but also the way this venture into the labyrinth is part of his sacrifice to stop the treatment of innocent children at the hands of the king or the mm. gods. You know, in The King Must Die, what Theseus does here is spark a rebellion. And so Luke's journey into the labyrinth was all with that end goal in mind, finding the way to camp and then giving himself over to Kronos. So he went through this anticipating sacrifice in the face of injustice like Theseus volunteering to sacrifice himself and it made me think that if this book were to be from Luke's perspective he would be thinking on the Theseus side of things and mm. all of those Daedalus interludes would have been Theseus interludes yeah I think you're right because part of me kind of in my head as you were talking about this was making these connections and thinking to myself well who's the Ariadne in this situation and it feels almost like that Ariadne in a way is kind of Annabeth to me yeah She's the person that he's supposed to care deeply, that he does care deeply about, he's supposed to care deeply about, that he ultimately, he just abandons her because she, all she was was a means to an end. Luke is abandoning Annabeth in that way, in a way that completely breaks her heart after making it through everywhere. So Percy, oh, we get, um, just touching on this very briefly, we get Percy giving into that instinct to run away that we've talked about a couple times mm -hmm. when he's sees Luke stand up no longer as Luke but now as Kronos. So Percy takes off uh, but Kronos has time powers so slows him down but Rachel snaps him out of it by hitting him with the blue plastic hairbrush. Iconic moment. And Percy makes it back into the labyrinth with Nico, Annabeth, and Rachel. And they're starting back on their way when they find Grover's cap in the dirt. And they realize that they are close to wherever Grover and Tyson disappeared to. And they're like basically right in front of where Pan has been all this time inside the labyrinth. Yeah. And he's Pan, the god, is kind of fading in and out. And he sort of has a parting message for all of them. And I was getting like emotional during this scene. And I don't get emotional in books easily. But like everything we've been talking about has really like made me really be thinking about all of this. And like thematically, I think there's a reason that this scene comes after Percy opens the coffin. Because opening the mm. coffin is an interesting scene, but it's not like the end. This is not like the point. This is not the final part piece of the, the labyrinth, you know? This is the final scene in the labyrinth. Because... I, I didn't phrase it this way in my notes, but I think what Phoebe was saying about it being grief is what this book is about. And specifically, this part is grieving what in a way is already gone. Basically, the god Pan, who is the god of the wild, has been actively fading for years, for thousands of years at this point. Pan is kind of a special case with the gods because he 
is a god who has seen the effects of western civilization on his realm and that's what's killing him Mm -hmm. interestingly this is where we get into a little bit of what i like to call emily's classical bronze age conspiracy theories one of the things that has always fascinated me is etymology of god's names because i am always really curious when specific gods crop up and pan is really interesting because there's a few different like theories as to like where he comes from Okay, so for those who don't know about Athens, um, the Acropolis is the name of this giant, basically, rock that's sort of it's the center of um, Athens. It's where the Parthenon, like the temple to Athena, is on top of. But that rock has been settled and around for a really long time. It's interestingly, because of the geology of the rock itself, rainwater kind of comes through it and comes out of it in specific springs. So it's where a lot of really ancient peoples and even the Stone Age would come and settle because there's fresh water coming through that's basically run through a filtration system that kind of um, also fuels a lot of the rivers that go through the city. What's also really interesting is that there are these caves that are carved on the far side of the Acropolis that we think date back all the way to like that stone age. And there's an interesting theory that they were used as partially as like a worship of Pan, this like god of the wild that could be a god that's really indigenous to specifically the indigenous peoples who lived in Greece. Because as I think I mentioned before, the people that we know of as the ancient Greeks are not indigenous to Greece. They moved in much later. And they would have been, in Greece at least, that kind of original displacement and colonization of the West into these lands. Like Greece was the first place colonized by the West. And Pan kind of being the witness to that from the beginning And, like, again, he'd been dying ever since that moment if he's a god indigenous to, like, the true, like, actual indigenous peoples of Greece. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing he says to Grover that I thought was a bit of a whammy for the whole book was he says, you believe in me the most, so you must be the first to let me go. And that made me think about Luke in the coffin and Annabeth. That made me think about... Annabeth and Daedalus that made me think about all of these heroes we've seen over the course of this book and also what this means in terms of grief because you know if you're the person if you're holding on to grief in a way you kind of do have to be the first to let that go as well in order to move on. So we see Pan die and a a part of his spirit enters um, all of their mouths and he kind of calls everyone out by name except nico except nico i was like hello like what yeah, poor nico anyway <laughs> say something to him but they make it through the labyrinth back to manhattan with the help of rachel they mm. drop rachel off in times square and they take pegasi back to camp mm. where everyone is preparing for Cronus's attack this is another like big shift I felt because it was a big like this time it's for real mood I think in the description of how they're preparing like there's like detailed fortifications mm-hmm. it's like how do we actually defend this place I think the moment where I felt like it was real was when they're Percy's describing all of those fortifications mm-hmm. and everything and then Chiron looks at it and says that it's not enough yeah. and then Percy looks at it and is like oh yeah he's right like yeah. <laughs> he's been describing it like it's like oh we're all getting ready we're prepared and then it's like Oh, actually, we're in over our heads. Yeah. So Cronus's army erupts from the labyrinth and uh-huh. the battle begins. 
they're making the last stand things look dire and then daedalus actually returns with briaris right who they kind of turn the tides but what actually turns the tide is grover yeah using the power of pan mm-hmm. um releasing his ghostly whale i don't know if you watched danny phantom but that is what grover does and it's such a good moment for Grover. I love that moment. I was just talking to my brother. I My brother read these books, but doesn't remember them very well. I can relate. But yeah. I was like, oh, I'm reading The Battle of the Labyrinth. And he was like, that's the one where Grover does that thing. And I was like, it is when Grover does that thing. Wow. Gun Johnny, I didn't remember that part. I did not remember how they won this battle. <laughs> it's such a good moment for him, though. Just combining, like, all of what you would think of as his weaknesses as, like, his panic and it's probably also combined with the grief from having just lost Pan and all of it just like bursting out of him at once. And it's um, amazing. <laughs> and good for Grover. That does successfully turn the tide. They all retreat into the labyrinth. And then Daedalus says, It's linked to my life force and it's time I stop cheating death. And Nico puts him to rest in his final sacrifice is what assures the camp will be safe from this threat. And they're finally able to, like, survey the damage. The two campers that are named that pass on are Lee Fletcher, Apollo Cabin Head, I think? Yep. And Castor, one of Dionysus's twin sons in Greek mythology. Castor is the mortal one, and Pollux is the immortal one. So the one who survives is the named after the immortal one. And we actually also get to see when Dionysus returns right after the battle that he is really, truly grieving. And this, I remember reading this for the first time, was also very striking to me. Like, this is one of the things I actually most remember about Dionysus is how he genuinely grieves his son. Yeah, like no other god does. Yeah. This was also one of the moments I remembered going into this of, like, just the image of Dionysus in that black suit. Yeah. It, his entire demeanor has like completely done a 180 with the death of his son yeah and i love that moment of him and percy just walking back through the forest and you just have to kind of sit there with mr d's grief yeah. coming at you yeah <laughs> and it's kind of the last of the characters going through grief which is it's not the one you would have expected no <laughs> To that end, I kind of want to go back and I want to think about each character's journey again and just like really, I want to explore it because I feel like it is really interesting. How each of these characters are experiencing grief in this book? Yeah, how each of them have to use the labyrinth to navigate their grief. I feel like Nico is probably the clearest version of this with him going into the labyrinth grieving and coming out kind of at peace with it, Mm -hmm. coming out of that grief. And even like when he exits the labyrinth in the middle of the story, he has that moment with Bianca's ghost and kind of gets to take another step in his mm-hmm. journey through his grief over her, mm-hmm. but then has to go back into it to complete it, um, which is handling the part that has to do with Percy. Well, I just want to dig into also like, what does he actually end up doing in the labyrinth as well? Like for him, it's a lot of negotiating and bargaining. I think he's trying to like reason with it in a way. It was also interesting as he goes to the underworld to talk to her and he doesn't he's not able to talk to her until he gets to the labyrinth. The labyrinth is what finally leads him to be able to talk to Bianca. Yeah. Which is what he really needs to do the most. I think another character who you can see fairly clearly is Daedalus trying to navigate his grief over his son mm-hmm. and his nephew. And so I sort of thought of him re-entering the labyrinth finally like 
in the last quarter of the book mm-hmm. as him finally confronting it because that is the deal that he's making with Kronos is that he's going to have to confront that mm-hmm. and he has to go back into the labyrinth in order to make that deal with Kronos or at least to fulfill that deal with Kronos. I don't know if we know exactly when he made it, but going back into the labyrinth means that he is sort of accepting that he this is something that he has to address again finally because he's just kind of been sitting in it for a while yeah we can talk about tyson maybe because that's simple i feel like we should build up to like the bigger the bigger ones i mean sure like tyson and grover i think are fairly easy ones grover being someone who has been avoiding grieving over pan mm-hmm. and reluctantly going into the labyrinth yeah because i think that that is like the main thing with pan and the satyrs is they're refusing to let him go they're refusing to grieve yeah and so instead of him navigating the labyrinth carrying grief he's navigating the labyrinth to find it yeah to find it <laughs> and in tyson's case he also wasn't carrying grief going in yeah but I think you you made a good point earlier where he is like the most optimistic character. And I think it's important that his is the first one we kind of encounter where, you know, like even having all of the theoretical tools, it's still really hard to get out of it. Mm-hmm. I don't know if we can count Rachel. Rachel knows how to navigate it perfectly. She has yeah, no issues with it. She me. has no issues with it. <laughs> and I think that comes through in her relationship with her dad. It feels like it's... Yes, I think Rachel is navigating her grief over losing her relationship with her family in a way. But it's something that she's been dealing with for so long that she can just kind of yeah. make her way through it without much issue. But there are obstacles in it that she does have to navigate and isn't prepared to navigate then annabeth is an easy one because it's luke that's (laughs) yeah and i think it's annabeth grieving luke and trying to navigate how to handle a loss that hasn't yet happened but Mm -hmm. also it's it's beyond luke it's navigating grief that hasn't yet happened because she has her prophecy warning her that you're gonna lose someone Mm. on this journey and so she just spends the entire book mourning and she doesn't even know who it's for yet yeah the last two we've got i think luke is navigating grief for his own life yeah because he knows that it's over basically Mm -hmm. and you know we know that he goes like in and out of the labyrinth constantly Mm -hmm. and keeps trying to send other people into it because he does not want to go in there (laughs) but eventually he has to go in there okay the character i'm struggling with is percy yeah because the book where I think he's experiencing the same thing that Luke is experiencing now is the next one. It's more like navigating grief for the old perspective on life that he had. Like grieving the, the life that he had before the tone shift. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I think it's grieving like his childhood. Trying to navigate this new version of the world that is so much darker than it was in book two yeah you know what it is i i do think he goes in at least grieving specifically nico because nico's the person he couldn't find and he's not grieving nico because he knows nico's okay but he's grieving nico's childhood and i think nico as a child is sort of a stand-in for pre-everything percy it's yeah it's the childhood he never really had i think also i want to talk about coming back to that line of like the labyrinth always needs a monster because in a very real and literal sense in this world building, it's really interesting that the labyrinth is tied specifically to Daedalus's life force because that is how yes. Monster Donut works, tied to the Hydras. 
Yep. Like the the world building supports the fact that Daedalus has become a literal monster, not just a metaphorical one. He's an automaton mm-hmm. as well. Um, he doesn't die or bleed the same way, and he actually has to be put to rest by Nico. Like, I wonder what would have happened if they'd tried to kill him, like the traditional way. I wonder mm-hmm. if he would have actually gone far enough to go into Tartarus and return someday. Likewise, like Antaeus is also a monster and a demigod. And then that also made me wonder per your question of like, who is the monster in the labyrinth when Daedalus leaves, if there has to be a monster in the labyrinth? At first I thought Antaeus, but I think that's too easy. Actually, now that I'm coming back to it and thinking about what we were talking about with like Luke being Theseus in this situation, it made me realize that I think much like grief operates differently, like the monster is kind of different for everybody. And I think specifically here in both Percy and Luke's case, I think the the monster are each other. I think Percy is like Luke's minotaur and Luke is Percy's. That's what I was thinking. But they fight each other by proxy in that arena for entertainment, which is sort of like what, and again, in the original myth, like you'd feed the minotaur and in some versions, it's also for entertainment. And Antaeus kind of ruling over it as the sort of like de facto Minos in this myth when Minos is gone. I forgot about this. I just remembered why I was going to, why I had this thought in the first place. And it's because Kronos says to Percy, Luke fears you. Yeah. Like Kronos seems to think Luke's fear of Percy is substantial. And Percy's floored because he's like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm afraid of Luke. Like, I think both of them are mm-hmm. the thing they fear. And what what I haven't put together is why Luke is afraid of Percy. I think that Luke is afraid of Percy. One is that I wonder if Luke knows the prophecy. Mm. If he does, then that's an easy reason for him to fear Percy. Another is that Luke basically created his own enemy, both by training him to sword fight and by betraying him. The only reason that Percy is after him and is actually able to fight him is because Luke kind of allowed him to. Mm. Uh, he fears his own creation, basically. Uh-huh. And like I said, uh, when we were talking about Sea of Monsters, that Percy is pretty unpredictable to Luke. And like I think maybe at this point, maybe he's starting to realize that following the Titan's curse. Yeah. Maybe he's kind of put that together, that this is an enemy that he can't anticipate who basically understands him and knows what move he's going to make next constantly and can appear and watch him in his dreams. That's true. Luke knows he's been watching him in his dreams this whole book because Kelly keeps being like, Kelly the Impusa is there and she's like a servant of Hecate so she knows when Percy's watching and she keeps being like, yeah. oh, we've got a eavesdropper. Hold on, let me take care of that. Yeah, and like this has happened consistently. I think the only book it doesn't happen too often in is Sea of Monsters. Mm. You know what else I think it might be? Is I think Luke knows... Like, if things were different, Percy would be, like, Kronos is chosen, basically. And I think he fears being cast aside for Percy. I think maybe that's it as well. Also, that threat of, like, Luke's Luke's life is not in his own control because of Percy. Because Percy keeps foiling all of his plans to do all of the things he actually wants to do. And Percy just keeps taking every dream of his away one by one, leaving him only with the worst consequences of his decisions as opposed to like the benefits. Yeah. Okay. So we're winding down and I just wanted to flag this because I think it's a really great scene. They wind down, Percy has this chat with Dionysus after the battle and then Hera comes up and basically says she's been helping them the whole time. She basically shows up, says, I helped you, sacrifice please. Yeah. 
And the stuff that she says that she did, like, it's basically the entire book was set up by Hera. Yeah. It's a really good reminder of all of the things Luke's fighting, all of the reasons why Luke is doing what he's doing. Yeah. It's kind of the only, like, because our encounter with Hephaestus, he's generally pretty good to them. Yeah. Pan, perfectly nice god. (laughs) And then at the end, we get, like, a very friendly interaction with Poseidon. And so this is kind of the only one that feels like part of that kind of criticism of the gods. Mm-hmm. It, like I I was kind of put off by how nice everyone was in this book. Yeah. <laughs> right after this, Poseidon shows up at their apartment. Yeah. And he like genuinely reaches out for like the first time in his life. I think the only other time that he's reached out on his own was the brace yourself thing. Yeah, but like that was <laughs> the meaningless. extremely helpful yeah. brace yourself. <laughs> And he comes in like, oh, yeah, it's just me, your dad. And like, it was just such a strange scene to me. It's very strange. He he comes and he's talking to Percy and Percy's like, hey, there's this guy that was like sacrificing in your name, like killing all these people and all these monsters for you. And he said he, you, he, was, you, he was your favorite son. And Poseidon says, no, the way our sons and daughters act in our names say more about them than about us, which is like, the, it's such a cop out. And then he says... <laughs> And you're my favorite son. Like, Tyson's right there. Oh, yeah, Tyson's there. <laughs> like, you ha- if you have more than one child, you can't tell one of them, oh, you're my fave. Like, that, what? That's not good parenting, Poseidon. That's just not good. And Tyson's right there. This scene is, it's written in a way, and the narrative tells you, like, this is heartwarming. It's great. Poseidon's really reaching out. Percy's impressing him. And it's like, no, he's not doing, like, this isn't genuine connection. This isn't good parenting. Like, Percy's finally done something, I guess, worthy or whatever of, like, a very toxic parent. And it's like the narrative's rewarding him for that. I could see this scene being, you know, it's Percy's birthday, and so... Poseidon, knowing the prophecy, knows that he has one year to make sure Percy's on his side. And so shows up to be like, oh, it's me, your loving father. Um, Please fight for me when the time comes. <laughs> and like giving him a, a present that will help him eventually fight for him. Mm-hmm. What's the present again? Not something he actually wants. Oh, right. It's the... If he gave him like a, a DS, then it'd be like, oh, wow. <laughs> Big sad. Like, I <laughs> Oh, wait, didn't the Wii come out like a year that year? Yeah, he should have gotten him a Wii. Should have gotten him a Wii. Okay, so one last thing before we end this. This book does have a bead, which is just a a red or orange bead with a maze painted on it. Mm -hmm. So we can do better than that. Oh, yeah. I actually know exactly what's on it. The chains hanging from the ceiling of the arena. Okay. I, this is the, that's the scene I think about when I think about this book and it's always been the scene I think about when I think about this book and coming back to reading this yeah that's the scene yeah that's a good one I it's like I saved the golden coffin for this one instead of the second book mm-hmm. but I almost don't want to use it like my brain is telling me to pick a moon lace. why I've just always loved that chapter so much <laughs> yeah it's okay. like I don't yeah, have yeah, a real yeah, reason yeah, yeah. I like the way that it rounds out the rebuilding the wild thing Mm. at the very end. And I like the way that it is a piece of that kind of paradise that Percy can keep right outside his window, like keep by his bedside. I don't know. I I just, I've always, like I have a, a, a painting of Percy on my Instagram 
that's just him like surrounded by a moon lace in the water. Mm-hmm. It's I've just I've always loved it. So I might just say moon lace. I like it. That's a good one. Thank you all for listening to Monster Donut. Next time, we are not reading The Last Olympian. <laughs> nope. We are going to be reading The Bronze Dragon and The Stolen Chariot from The Demigod Diaries. The Bronze Dragon actually takes place during Battle of the Labyrinth. So we're going to be reading that next. Mm-hmm. Until then, if you would like to get in touch or see some of the art that I made during the recording of this episode, you can check us out at PJOPod on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And I am also posting the time lapses of those drawings on my YouTube channel, which is Fojoko, P-H-O-J-O-C-O. I posted my first TikToks this week, so you should all yes, look at them. Please do. One of them has like 40 something thousand views what? and like 300 likes. Like no one likes it. <laughs> but who keeps watching it? Uh, it's just me watching it over and over again. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. Okay. Thank you all for listening. Uh, Bye, everyone. Bye. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.